This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to teach God's Word to you tonight. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. And I'd like to open kind of with an illustration. Imagine it was your job to sell bomb shelters. That's your job. Think about how you might go about it. Maybe one of the first things that you would do, you have a customer, is you might say, well, look, I know exactly what you're looking for. And you would list what they needed. You'd say, you're looking for someplace that your family would be safe in even the worst of attacks. But you're not just looking for someplace strong. You're going to need waste disposal, access to water, supply rooms. And then you might give an example. You'd say, I'd like to tell you the testimony of a customer who bought one of our bomb shelters, withstood a direct hit, and they lived to tell the tale. They actually lived quite comfortably. Then you would list all the specs of why your bomb shelter is the best. You have so many feet of concrete and your steel can withstand this, this much impact and you have these kinds of storerooms and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, cutting edge technology. Your job would to be to give the greatest possible assurance to this person who is concerned about their family. You would want to give them complete confidence our author here tonight has the same goal in mind, but our author is not a salesman. He's a pastor. And he's not trying to sell a product. He's trying to move the people in this congregation to celebrate what God has done by reminding them of their confidence, their assurance, the guarantee that they have by God. And with that kind of hope and confidence, it's going to change their lifestyle. They will live differently when they've grasped that kind of hope. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 11. Now our author is still building his main point that we jumped into last week. It's a challenge to go on to maturity. He challenged people last week. He said, look, a lot of you are immature. Some of you are immature because you become complacent. Some of you are immature because you're not even in the faith. And you need to check yourself. Because if you reject God and you reject his blessings, God will give you exactly what you want. He'll turn you over to your own fatal desires. And so he's challenging them, move towards maturity. If that's you, if you are living in a place where you're like, I'm putting on the show, but it's not real in your heart, take the warning, give your life to Christ, surrender to him the one who, who offers himself on behalf of you. So we're picking up, picking up there, and we're going to start in verse 11. And just like our bomb shelter salesman, he's going to lay out, this is the need, this is the goal. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end 
so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, testimony, he's going to give the testimony, the example, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now he's going to lay out the reasons that we can have confidence. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and on all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge may have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Woo! We're diving in deep tonight. You guys ready for this? So what's our goal? Our author here wants God's people to have the maximum amount of confidence, expectation, and anticipation of God's promises being true. And he's saying, but but stay active, trusting God. Look at what he says. He says that these this assurance, this full assurance and hope to the end is going to move them to not being sluggish. That means lazy, dragging their feet, complacent, apathetic, but instead be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And he's going to make a list in Hebrews 11 of those that trusted God so much that it actually moved them to action. And their action revealed their faith. So they didn't have promises because of the stuff they did, In fact, it was because they trusted the promises that motivated them to be faithful. So stay active in trusting God. Hope in the Bible doesn't mean when you ask Santa for a wish list and you hope it comes true. Hope in the Bible is expectancy. Imagine a football receiver and he he launches off the line and he makes a hard left cut. And just as he turns, the football is right there in the pocket. Boom, from the quarterback. He ran his play. He was obedient to the play. He took action because he expected the ball to be where the quarterback told him it was going to be. But in a football analogy, the quarterback could get sacked. The receiver might trip or not catch it well. But here... Our expectancy is coming from someone greater. We can have a full assurance. We don't just expect it. We are, we are assured. We're confident. How confident? Fully, completely, totally confident in the expectancy. Listen to how he compounds these words. That God's promises will be true for his people. He will come through. And then after he's laid out his hope for these people, that they would have a full assurance in God's promise, he then gives an example, an illustration, someone who saw the faithfulness of God. And he points at Abraham, who is one of the people he talks about in Hebrews 11. For when God made a promise, verse 13, to Abraham, 
Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. This is Abraham. Abraham, way back, Elijah unpacked this just a couple weeks ago. God challenged Abraham with an incredible test of his faith. Would he trust God's promises? And Abraham is stuck between a rock and a hard place. God told him two seemingly contradictory things. This son, Isaac, is going to be the one who has a nation of children come out of him. This son, Isaac, I want you to kill and sacrifice him. And with two contradictory statements, Abraham had to trust in the word and the character of God. That even though he had no idea how two things could be true simultaneously, Abraham, because of his trust, took action. And we see a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. And it was right after that. God had stopped Abraham from killing Isaac. And it's on this that we're going to pick up. Turn your Bibles. Keep your thumb in Hebrews. We're going back. But turn your Bibles back to Genesis. Way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 22. And I want to look at this together. This is where our author is quoting tonight. Our mysterious author of Hebrews Genesis chapter 22, verse 16. Actually, let's start at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you had done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. If someone was going to make you a promise, how would you rate how much you would trust them to keep it? I think if we boiled it down, it'd come down to three things. It would come down to first, what is this person's character? Are they honest? Are they good? Do they genuinely care about you? But if someone has great character, but they don't have the power to fulfill their promise, then you can't trust it. So the second, the first is character. The second is power. Do they have the ability, do they have the resources and the strength to carry out what they promise? Character, power, and the third thing is history. Has this person been honest? Have they kept their promises in the past? Have they kept all their previous promises? Character, power, history. Consider God. God is infinite. He is holy perfection and goodness. He is truth by definition, and truth is his nature. And he swore by what? By himself, by his own character. So God is saying, by my character, I'm standing on my character, that this is going to come to pass. James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He will keep his word because of his character. Secondly, God's promises 
are backed by the full force of his omnipotence, of his wisdom, and of his sovereignty, his right to rule and do what he wants in creation. What can stand against almighty power? So when he makes a promise, he has every ability to carry it out. And third, how does God hold up in history? And that's what our author is doing here. He raises Abraham. If God has a promise to his people today, you and me, how did he hold up to his promise to Abraham? Abraham's promise was that God would multiply his children. And Abraham won't even see it in his lifetime. His son won't see it in his his lifetime or his grandsons in their lifetime. However, by the time Moses leads Abraham's family out of Egypt, they are 600,000 men, not including women and children. Somewhere between two and three million people between Abraham and when Moses leads them out of Egypt. Today, there are 15.3 million Jews around the world who claim the ethnic descent of Judaism. If God says something will happen, it's because he will be the one from his power, from his character, orchestrating that it will happen and nothing and no one can stand against it. Verse 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, I do want to point out that he didn't obtain the promise because of how he waited. God's going to have his promises fulfilled, however we are. We can be stressed and sweating and white-knuckling, and God's going to do what he says he's going to do. However, Abraham's posture showed his faith. He was the football receiver, and he ran the play. He obeyed even before he saw the outcome. So do we trust God enough to act before we see the outcome? So our author has laid out our need, what he wants. He wants us to have full trust and expectancy in our hope. And then he's laid out an illustration. Look, God has been true to his promises. And three, let's take a look at what those promises are. Hebrews chapter six. So in verse 13, he says, Abraham Oh no, in verse 13 he says that God made a promise and since he had no greater, no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And let's jump to verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God is desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God, first of all, makes a promise. And then secondly, he makes an oath, which means that he swore by something. Now, back in those days, they would say, well, I swear by the temple, by the altar, by great grandma's grave, whatever it was. But you would swear by something that was greater than you. you it might be like saying, my oath will stand firm as long as that mountain stands firm. Or you may say that my oath is the same consistency and weight of the temple. And, and doing this kind of swearing was actually warned. Like Jesus warns people not to do this. He simply says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. But who would God make an oath by? What would he swear by? There's no one greater than himself. And so he swears 
by himself. Now, God has no need to promise anything. And he has no need to make an oath. If he says it, it's as good as done. It's as good as done as if it's already happened. But for Abraham and his humanity and us and the way we doubt and the way we struggle and in our weakness, God is using the strongest possible human language to try to assure us so that we would rest in what he's saying. And then we have a focus shift right here. We're no longer talking about Abraham, but we're talking about the heirs of the promise. So who are the heirs of Abraham? If you're in Hebrews, go left just a little bit to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Who are the heirs of Abraham? I am not personally Jewish. If you're Jewish in here, awesome. But most of us would not be counted into the ethnic family of Abraham. So Galatians chapter 3. It may be good news to find out who Jesus sees as descendants of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We are in him. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You receive the promises of Abraham's descendants. And that's what our author Hebrews is talking about. If you have made Christ your king, if you've submitted your life to him, then you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. And the promises that God is making right here belong to you. And what is God's promise to the heirs of Abraham? Let's turn one last time before we go to Hebrews. Go to the right, to the back of the Bible, 1 John. If you've gone to Jude or Revelation, you've gone too far. 1 John chapter 5. What is God's promise to the heirs of Abraham? 1 John chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 9. We're going to see this word testimony a lot. This word testimony is actually where the word martyr comes from because a martyr was someone who testifies unto death. And so when you see testimony, this is someone proclaiming they're, they're preaching. This is the gospel in a nutshell. So let's look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. So if we can trust anyone, how much more can we trust God? The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. This is what God says about his son right here. Verse 10. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So what is the promise? The promise is that whoever believes in the son of God has salvation. Verse 11, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. God's promise to the heirs of Abraham is salvation to all who believe in Jesus. 
So the same God of the same character who fulfilled the promise to Abraham is the same God who has made an equally trustworthy promise to you and me. And as surely as he made good his promise to Abraham, he will again be equally faithful to us. What's that promise? It's salvation for all who believe. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 11.29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If you have salvation, if God has given you salvation, it is irrevocable. It can't be taken away. It can't be, it can't be lost or thrown or severed. What can separate us from the love of God? Who can snatch us out of the hands of Christ? Verse 7, Hebrews, back, back to Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So what are these two unchangeable things that we can rest in? They're the same things that Abraham rested in. They are God's promise, which is his word, because it's impossible for him to lie, and it's his character. He swore by himself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 9, just listen carefully. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sin, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. What is God's purpose that we're reading about in Hebrews 6? His purpose is to save you and retain every day of your life, your salvation. We have the full assurance of hope that no matter what, God will save us. We don't have to stress about losing our salvation. We can celebrate our salvation. The one who did the work is the one who continues the work. The one whose power saves us is the one whose power keeps us saved. We can rest and celebrate who he is. If God promises salvation to those who believe in him, then the burden to fulfill the promise is on him not our abilities, not our works, no ladder of goodness that we can climb. It's on him. William MacDonald says that it is no exaggeration to say that the simplest believer on earth is as certain of heaven as the saints who are already there. It's beautiful. So we've talked about this assurance of hope. What is our hope for salvation in? We talked about God's promise. We talked about his character. And it was the same for Abraham as it is for us. Our hope is still in the promise and character of God, but ours is more tangible than for Abraham. Abraham is looking into this foggy future. The promises of God were in his future. But for us, God's word and God's character became flesh and dwelt among us. God's very character and God's very word was tangible. And he lived a sinless life and he died the perfect death for us. Like, 
Think of the difference between Abraham and us. If Abraham could trust, how much more us? Like you could look at a map and say, look, out here in the blue is an island. And I believe because this map is trustworthy that it exists. That's Abraham. But for us, we can look back at a living savior who died and resurrected. And we are looking off the bow of our ship saying, there it is, there is the island. I can put my feet on it. I can rest that it's there. Our salvation is visible and tangible. God's word and God's character walked among us. A believer's hope of salvation is eternally secure in Jesus. And then our author is going to give us four analogies of why we can rest in Jesus. The first one is he says in verse 18 that that we have fled for refuge. This is a reference back to Numbers 35 and Joshua 20. There were cities set up, six of them, three on each side of the Jordan River. And if you accidentally killed somebody, like it was an accident, the family has every right to avenge the death of their loved one and kill you. But God established cities of refuge that you could run to for safety. And when you arrived, the elders of the city would investigate what happened. And as long as you were there, you were protected by the avengers, by the city. And if the elders of the city recognized that you were innocent, they would allow you to live there. And as long as you lived in the city of refuge, you were safe. Jesus is our refuge that we flee to. Now, who are we fleeing from? We're fleeing from the punishment of sin by the very wrath of God. And what's so beautiful is that what is shown here is this this beautiful picture of the only place to run from the wrath of God for our sin is to God himself. He sets up Jesus to be our refuge that we run to, that he is our place of salvation, and we are in him. In a world that is doomed under the punishment of sin is the very thing that we are fleeing from. We have fleed from our old lifestyles, the old place that we found purpose and meaning and fulfillment, the the fatal desires that we used to chase in our sin. And we have run to Jesus, our place of safety, our city of refuge. And the second one that it gives us is that he is our steadfast anchor in verse 19. Our anchor And it's an anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This inner place behind the curtain is a reference to the Holy of Holies. The Jewish temple had a place set up that no one could go. This was the place of God's manifest presence. Now, God is omnipresence. He is everywhere. But there was a special presence called the Shekinah glory that dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And only one man, one time a year, would go through all these cleansing rituals so that he could enter the Holy of Holies with a purpose. He would give a sacrifice on the altar, and he would bring the blood into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood across the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the people's sins. And he was the only one that could go in there. And we have our anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the veil. Who is it that enters into the veil, into the holy presence of God on our behalf? It's Jesus. 
The manifestation of God's word and character is our anchor that we can hold on to. And it is sure and steadfast. It doesn't slip. It doesn't break. We can cling to it as the hope of our soul, that he was the perfect sacrifice. And he enters into the presence of God for our atonement. And that's our hope. That's what we anchor in, Jesus's work for us. In verse 20, it calls Jesus our forerunner, the forerunner on our behalf, who's gone into the veil, having become a high priest. As long as there was a temple, only the high priest could go in. There is no other place that you'll find the word forerunner in the Bible. This was totally outside of their paradigm because only the priest could go in. He wasn't making the way for anybody. This was outside of what they would understand. The high priest was not a forerunner except Jesus was. This privilege that was exclusive to only one, Jesus goes in ahead of us and he makes the way for us to enter the presence of God. Having made redemption by his own sacrifice, he makes the way to the Father, having gone before us. And he does it for three reasons. One, to make the way for us. Two, he's our intercessor on our behalf. Think about this. The judge of heaven, when you stand before him as a Christian, the judge of heaven is actually on your side. You stand before a judge that gave his own life to predetermine the outcome of what will happen when you stand in front of him. And for your entire life, he stands interceding on behalf of you. Can't we rest? Can't we rest in that kind of forerunner? The forerunner who has made a way, the forerunner who intercedes for us, and the forerunner who is there to welcome us when we arrive. Jesus is our city of refuge. Jesus is our anchor. And Jesus is our forerunner. And fourth, he is our high priest. The main role of the high priest was to represent people to God, to intercede for them and to bring a sacrifice of atonement. And Jesus did that for us. Jesus represents us. He was human, truly human, so he could represent us perfectly. And he was truly God so that he could perfectly represent us and be the perfect, holy, and righteous sacrifice. And with our sin dealt with, he makes a way for us. He's the caretaker of our souls. What can we fear? That our faith isn't strong enough? That we fail too often? That we don't white-knuckle it every day of our lives? No, our salvation is something we can rest in. It's our impregnable hope. He is our city of refuge. He is our anchor. He is our forerunner. And he is our high priest. And next week, we're finally going to deal with this guy, Melchizedek, that our author put on pause way back in chapter 5. But I want to conclude with our first verses. Hebrews 6, verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, lazy, complacent, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience took action and waited patiently, and they inherited the promises. Right beforehand, in verse 7 and 8, it gives this idea of a field, that God is the rain, and he's raining on the field, and the field is going to produce fruit or thorns. 
And he gives us this analogy because we're not supposed to be farmers who sit on the porch drinking sweet tea. He is tasking us. Because of our hope, we should not be sluggish or lazy. Because of our hope, we go to work. Because of our hope, we engage for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Because of our hope, we want other people to know Jesus, to know our high priest. We want them to have a forerunner, an anchor, a city of refuge. Because of our hope, not only do we celebrate, we have contagious celebration of who God is and what he's done. Let's love. Let's love God with all of our hearts and let's love people well. That shows our faith. That shows faith that's not dead. It's faith with action. Way back when I got to work on a high ropes course and it was so fun. I loved putting students way up 30 feet in the air and they're wearing a harness and like a a string of dental floss, which was the rope that would go through the, the pulley and come down to me. And I love seeing them get out of their comfort zones. And by the way, girls are tougher and braver than guys. Across the board. And it was so fun that as they would leave the safety of one telephone pole to walk out into what seemed like empty space through some challenge to the other side, it was a human tendency to grab the rope that was attached to their harness and try to walk like this, you know, trying to get through the challenge. And you know something? No matter how tight they held to that rope, it didn't make them any safer. What made them safe was me or another counselor down there holding on to it. They could cling to this. They could bite it. They could do whatever they want. But until they free their hands and engage whatever the hanging ropes or the strange angles or whatever the things were, they were not going to do well. There was going to have to be a surrender because they, they had no control anyway. The person who had control was on the other end. And it was like every day I was saying, I promise, I've got you. I'm not going to let you fall. My eyes are on you. I'm totally engaged. If you'll trust me, if you'll let go of the rope, if you'll let go of the telephone pole, I'll get you all the way through. And I think that's what our author wants us to hear Jesus saying. I've got you, I promise. If you'll let go, if you'll just be faithful, stop stressing, rest and celebrate that on the other end, God has got you. He did the work through his own power and he is gonna hold on to you by his work and by his own power. Our hanging on, our trying to be good enough to please him, that should be old news. He is pleased, he loves you, he died for you, he knew you and loved you before you knew him. Let's rest. Let's be faithful. Let's go to work because of the hope that we have. Our author of Hebrews desires believers to feel secure in their salvation. He uses Abraham as an example of how God does keep his promises. God's promises are based on two unwavering things, his word and his character. Therefore, our hope is in the work and person of Jesus, God himself. He's our city of refuge, our anchor, our forerunner, and our high priest. And our hope should propel us in faithfulness and action. My challenge for you between now and next week is to go and read Genesis chapter 12 through 15. If you want to pick up and read 
13 and 14, that's great, but you will have no idea what's going on. So go and read the story of Abraham and what's going on with Melchizedek, and next week it's gonna be interesting. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can rest in you. I thank you, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit and by the celebration of what you've done, we are not a people who sit still. We are not sluggish. We are people who engage. Lord, if there is anyone in this room who does not know you, prick their heart. Let them not know peace until they know the Prince of Peace. Disturb their sleep. Mess with them. Bring people into their lives that they respect that are speaking truth. Lord, I pray that you will change hearts of stone, that you will replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, that you will open blind eyes. Lead us and lead day after day your people in expanding and working out of the hope of what you've done. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus. Jesus.